We want to study again in the book of Colossians, and I invite you to turn there to Colossians chapter 4. As we come to the really the end of our journey through Colossians, we have the opportunity to once again be challenged to consider the matter of relationships. Relationships. You remember last time I said to you that for the Apostle Paul, relationships are everything. You can see that by the way he begins and ends his letters. He's always talking about people. He's always concerned with people, either the people that he is ministering alongside or the people that he is ministering to. And that's really what we find ourselves impacted by when we look at Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 to 18. You remember from last time that as we studied verses 7 to 11, we saw that there were five key relationships that Paul talks about there. And if you remember, we attached a certain character quality to each one of these individuals, and then we applied that to our own lives, and we asked the question, is this true of me? And as I said, it might be easier for us to look at other portions of God's Word to see that character quality as commanded of us, that we need to pursue those things, but it's also interesting to see it through the lens of a life, through a relationship that Paul would have. You remember that we talked much last time about the first of these five relationships that are contained in verses 7 to 11, and that was Tychicus. Tychicus, it says, Paul does, is our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, and he'll bring you information. We said that Tychicus was the faithful courier. You remember? We said that he was the one dispatched by Paul to bring Paul uh, to bring to the churches that Paul wrote to a number of the letters, the New Testament letters that Paul wanted them to hear. And he became for us a living illustration of being a faithful man who dispatched those letters. And we turned that around and we asked the question, what about my life? The courier, the one who dispatches a New Testament letter, Tychicus, may not be myself exactly, but if I were to ask myself, do I have the letter of the gospel written on my heart, do I faithfully dispatch that to the people that the Lord has put into my life? Do I take the gospel, the gospel is a letter in my heart, and do I take it to the people who desperately need to hear it? And that's what Tychicus was for us. And then Paul says, look at Onesimus in verse 9. He's our faithful and beloved brother. He's one of the number of the Colossians. That means he's a resident there. And... Onesimus, as you remember, was the useful, forgiven slave. He was the one who was to go back after having been converted by Paul to Christ, and he was to go back to Philemon and seek his master's forgiveness. And we believe that Philemon did forgive him, and he became the living illustration of what it means to be both forgiven and then to be useful for service. We ask ourselves the question of our own lives, am I forgiven? in my relationship to God? Am I then taking that forgiven quality of my life, one who's been restored to the Lord, and do I then take that back to the Lord and say, now, Lord, use me. Use me in a life. Use me in a 
situation for your glory and your honor. We looked at that in great detail. But we left off there, and there are three more that are contained for us in the latter part of this particular passage. One is Aristarchus. Aristarchus. Look at him in verse 10. He's the third in our little list. Aristarchus. Paul says about him that he is my fellow prisoner and he sends you his greetings. He sends you his greetings. Who is this man, Aristarchus? Well, let's attach a character quality to his life. Let's say that he is the valiant warrior for Christ. He's the valiant warrior for Christ. I mean, if Tychicus is the faithful courier, if Onesimus is the useful forgiven slave, then Aristarchus is for us a picture of the valiant warrior that we must be for Christ. Notice what Paul says about him. He says, he is my fellow prisoner. You say, what's so interesting about that? Well, it's interesting because Paul only uses that specific phrase to refer to himself. And so if he's putting another man on that kind of plateau, then he must be very special. Paul says about himself in Ephesians 3.1 and chapter 4, verse 1 of Ephesians, that he's the prisoner of the Lord. And he says of Aristarchus here, he's my fellow prisoner. I even believe that this phrase, because it doesn't have a qualifier in Christ or in the Lord or for the Lord, that this may in fact mean that Aristarchus had actually served prison time with Paul. My fellow prisoner. The man for whom I have been sitting with in chains. And that, my friends, is a great picture of what it means to be a warrior, a valiant warrior for Christ. I mean, let's ask ourselves the question. We live in the 20th century, almost the 21st century. They lived in the 1st century. And when Aristarchus was bold for his faith, that landed him in prison like Paul. We don't live in that time. We don't live in that context. But if we did, what would be our response? Would I be bold for Christ? Would I be as able and willing to proclaim Jesus Christ in the marketplace, in my home, in the shop? You know that Joseph's son, who will be speaking to us again this fall in our missions time, is a man who has filled this pulpit before. He's a pastor in Romania. You're very familiar with him. I became a lot more familiar with him when he and I were studying in Belgium in that doctoral program. He graduated in 1996. And I really heard him when he was giving his doctoral dissertation. I really heard his heart come out. His doctoral dissertation, by the way, was on martyrdom in the Bible. And that's very near and dear to his heart because he's had, he's had friends who've been martyred for the faith. He's a man who, for us in our own time, even in the 20th century, is a model for what it means to be a valiant warrior for Christ because he has spent time in prison for his faith. When I was traveling in the former Soviet Union, I talked with people who had actually spent time behind bars for their faith in Christ. I mean, it's, it's really not in our context to think about the fact that there is that kind of reality in our own day, but it is true. It does happen. There are even people who convert from Arab religions, from the Muslim faith to Christianity, and there are Christians who are even being slaughtered today in our world for their faith in Christ. And they could rightly be called valiant warriors. But what about us? 
I mean, we live in Little Rock, Arkansas. We have all of the modern conveniences. We have really no one who castigates us because of our faith. No one really criticizes us. I mean, we might have a bit of that, but it's not really in comparison to a man like Aristarchus. So, how do we live? How do we apply? How do we look at this? Well, Aristarchus may be for us the living example of what it means to be a valiant warrior for Christ, but we're also called by Paul to put our armor on, aren't we? In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, he says, Put on the armor of God. Stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Now what Paul is saying there is that it might not be that you in the 20th century would be arrested for your faith, but you're in a spiritual battle. And that spiritual battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That means it's a battle for our minds. It's a battle for the truth. And it may not be physical, but it certainly is spiritual. Are we prayer warriors for Christ? Are we the person for whom Paul would commend because he says, you have your armor on. That's good. That's good. Keep that armor on. The, bless, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the loins of truth, the feet shod with the good news of the gospel of peace, the belt of truth. Keep that armor on. You need to be a warrior for Christ. You may not suffer physically, but you sure will suffer spiritually if you stand up for Christ. And Aristarchus is a great picture for us of that. Do you have your armor on? Are you fulfilling the command of Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 that you are taking that armor, those spiritual armaments, and are you taking them to the battle? Or are we unprepared? Do we find ourselves falling to temptation time and time and time again. Well, it may be because we don't have our armor on. We're not availing ourselves of the weaponry that God has given to us. And if we are like Aristarchus, then we're going to have our armor on. We're going to be prepared, ready for the battle. And then there's another person that we find here in verse 10, and that is Mark. Mark, do you see him there? Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas' cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. What kind of character quality is true of Mark? Well, let's call him the restored servant. The restored servant. How so? Now, let me give you a little background on John Mark. We call him John Mark because John is his Jewish name, and Mark is his Latin name, Marcus. And you remember that Mark is the author of the gospel that bears his name, having been very influenced by Peter. In fact, Peter says at the end of his first epistle that he is my son in the faith. So Peter may have led Mark to Christ, John Mark, and John was the cousin of Barnabas, as Paul tells us here. And he began several of the early missionary journeys with Paul and with Barnabas. In fact, turn over to Acts chapter 13 and you'll see that John Mark actually accompanied Paul and Barnabas on the very first missionary journey of the church. Acts chapter 13. John Mark is apparently a young man. He wants to go along. He wants to be a part of this missionary journey. He wants to do what is right. He's following his cousin Barnabas. Notice what happens in Acts chapter 13, verse 13. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. 
But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now you might, if you were reading through the book of Acts, just pass right over that. But that's a very significant statement. We don't know exactly what was occurring there, but we do know this. John Mark stepped out of the race. There was a journey to be had. It no doubt would have been very strenuous, very difficult. And for some reason, John Mark left. He departed. You say, what was really going on? Well, we don't know for sure, but in Acts chapter 15, we find out a little bit more in verse 37. There's now the second missionary journey, and they're deciding now who will go. And it says in verse 37, Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him, take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Now that's very significant because the word deserted is the word that's used elsewhere for the word apostasy, a falling away. That's probably not used in the full spiritual sense here, but it does describe for us that there was some level of desertion in John Mark's heart. He left. He couldn't take it for some reason. Maybe the work was too hard, or maybe there was too much persecution. Maybe it was too hot. We don't know. John Mark deserted. Verse 39 says, There occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another, that is, Paul and Barnabas. Apparently, Barnabas believed that his cousin Mark was useful. Paul didn't think so. He thought he was useless. And he said, I'm not going to allow this young man to be on our journey. And Barnabas said, I will. And so the two of them separated. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. Paul said, I need useful servants. I can't take this guy along because he can't take the heat. And Barnabas said, I believe he can. I'm going to take him with me. And the two said, well, if you're going to do that, then we need to separate from each other. And that's what happened. And guess what? In the next 10 to 12 to 15 years, according to our New Testament, the Bible is absolutely silent about John Mark. Not one more statement about him. You know, and if that were all that there was, we'd say, here is the tragic record of a person who chose not to follow, who chose not to bear the reproach of Christ, who chose not to be along the very difficult path of what it meant to be a missionary in the early church. And that would be for us tragic. But remember, I said that, that the character quality of his life was that he was the restored servant. You say, how so? Look in your Bibles at 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is so wonderful. Mark is restored somehow and in some way, in a way we don't know, in a way we don't fully understand, but it says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, only Luke is with me. Everybody else has departed. Everybody else has deserted. But I want you to do this. Notice, pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. Oh, what a picture. What a picture. He's restored. You say, how? I don't know. doesn't say. Probably doesn't matter if it doesn't say. What matters is 
He left, but now he's back. He probably, through that 10 to 12 to 15 year period, began to mature and grow in his faith. He began to see that persecution was a part of the Christian life at that time, and he decided, I am going to put my hand to the plow and I'm not going to look back. I'm going to do the work of the ministry. I've seen Paul and I've seen my cousin Barnabas and I must be that way. I can't be fickle. I can't just respond with a desertion every time the heat comes. I'm going to respond rightly. And boy, did he respond. In fact, he responded to such a degree that when Paul is about to be executed, because that's what's happening in 2 Timothy 4, that's the last will and testament he ever wrote, he knows that his time has come. He says, I'm about to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. I'm just about to be executed. I know that's coming, and there is one man that I want you to bring to me. It's Mark. Mark, he's useful to me for service. Oh, what a restoration. What a restoration. Have you in your own life come to the place where you haven't put your hand to the plow without looking back? Are you faithful? Are you committed? Are you doing what you know you should do? Or are you fickle? You know, there, are, there are a lot of people who are halfway committed, but only halfway. Just a very, very few who look at the life, the Christian life, and say, I don't care what it costs. They're always faithful. They're always showing up. They're always completing the task. They're not deserters. But you know what? There's even a word here from Mark about desertion. You can be in that category. You can be in the category of saying, yes, that is true of me. I don't follow through with my tasks. I don't commit myself. I don't put my hand to the plow without looking back. But I can be restored. And that's Mark. He's restored. Mark's biography, says one, offers hope for those who have failed. There is hope for the coward, the deserter, if only he will turn back to Christ. The possibility of recovery, of renewed and enlarged usefulness is open to all. Mark challenges us to learn the secret of success by taking advantage of our blunders and failures and turning them into stepping stones in the struggle for respect and usefulness. One who has failed need not remain a failure. Isn't that such a good word? Oh, all of us have failed in one way or another. All of us have been asked to commit ourselves to a particular task in ministry or wherever. And we haven't followed through. We haven't been useful. And we're John Mark at the first part of our life. And maybe there have been some barren years. We need to be John Mark in the latter part of our life so that we can be useful. There's another man, the fifth in our list, Jesus who is called Justice. Verse 11, and also Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. You say, what can you possibly glean from Jesus, who is called Justice? Well, only one thing, because this is the only place he's ever mentioned, and the only thing we can glean is what we might call Jesus, who is called Justice, the eager encourager, the eager encourager. You say, how so? Well, notice Paul says, he along with the other two have proved to be an encouragement to me. Hey, he's an encouragement. Wouldn't it be a grand thing for you in your life if your name was listed in Holy Scripture and if you only had one thing said about you, you were an encourager. 
Boy, you say, well, how do you get the eager part? Well, remember now, he said, these are the only ones from the circumcision, which means Aristarchus, John Mark, and Jesus, who is called Justice, are the only three from the circumcision who are part of Paul's companionship here, which means he's a Jew going into a Gentile community in Colossae. That might be a problem. You remember there was great hostility between Jews and Gentiles and even a greater, or greater hostility because Judaism was rampant in the church at Colossae. Remember chapter 2 when Paul was telling them, fight against it, fight against it, resist it, resist it. And here's this eager encourager who says, yes, I'm of the Jewish faith, but I'll tell you what, I've converted myself to Jesus Christ. I believe in Him. I've seen the Lord. I know the Word and I just want to be an encouragement to you. I just want to be an encouragement. Is that a character quality that is necessary in our own day? It is in my life. You know, when I began to study this passage, I probably, like you, was saying to myself, at least initially, what could I possibly glean from what is here? But you know what I gleaned? Conviction. Conviction. I read this about Jesus who is called Justice, and I read that he was an encouragement, and then I thought about that concept of the only thing that's mentioned about him is this, and then I asked myself that inevitable question that we all should ask, and that is, am I an encourager? And I had to say to myself, you know, that's probably my weakest area in all areas. I'm just not a good encourager. I haven't developed the habit of encouraging others. You know how buttressed, how buoyant, a person will become in the ministry, how satisfying, how wonderful it is when someone comes alongside you and says, good job, good job. You do well at this. Your spiritual giftedness is seen by many people, and I'm one of them, and I want to encourage you to excel still more. Boy, I think you're really a good praying partner. Boy, I really think that as my wife, you do a great job in our home. We're not perfect, but boy, we're striving to be what we can be. You know, I really appreciate you as my husband because you go out and toil and labor for the process of making sure that our family's financial needs are taken care of. I really appreciate that. You know how encouraging that is? You might have someone who's an eager encourager in your own life. I pray that I will grow and respond to be an encouragement. Spouse, do you encourage the one you've married? Children, kids, do you encourage your parents? Or are you the bane of their life? Because you're just always being discouraging. You know, there are enough people in the church who have the spiritual gift of discouragement. We need encouragement. We need people who can come along and be encouraging and say, job well done. We need people who will be for us eager to come alongside us. You know this word, by the way? It's the word that's actually used of the Holy Spirit, the parakletos, the paraclete, the one who comes alongside, the one who consoles, the one who gives comfort, consolation. That's Jesus who is called justice. And what about some others? Are there some others who are listed here? Yes, look at verse 12. Look at Epaphras. What is Epaphras' life all about? What's the character quality that is true of him? Well, let's call him the mighty prayer intercessor. 
the mighty prayer intercessor. Look at verses 12 to 13. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Epaphras. He was the man whom God used through Paul's spiritual lineage who brought the gospel to these Colossians. That's what chapter 1 verse 7 says. It says, you actually learned about the truth of the gospel through Epaphras. And many Bible commentators believe, and I am one of them, who says that Epaphras was probably also by that the pastor of the church. Because what Paul says about Epaphras, he says about very few others, which leads me to believe that he has Epaphras on that same kind of level who's ministering and ministering and ministering and pastoring these people. The church in Laodicea, the church in Hierapolis, the church here in Colossae. And how does he conduct his ministry as pastor of the church? Notice, he is always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. I told you about that laboring it's from the Greek word agon. He's agonizing in his prayers for you. Wouldn't you like to have a pastor who's agonizing in their prayers for you? And how often does he do that? What does it say? What does it say? Always. Always. The continual pattern of Epaphras' life is a life of intercessory prayer agonizingly striving, working hard, struggling. You say, what's he struggling with? Remember chapter 2, I want you to stay away from the heresy. I want you to be protected. I want you to know, Paul says, that this is wrong and this is right, and I want you to cling to that which is right. And by the way, I'm going to make sure that I'm praying for you diligently, and so is your pastor Epaphras. He's going to always labor diligently, painfully, agonizingly for your soul. And he says in verse 13, he has a deep concern. Deep concern. The, the English words, deep concern, just don't do it justice. It's pain, toil, distress, affliction. What an incredible pastor. He is on his knees more than he's on his feet. Or as someone well said it, man is at his greatest and highest when upon his knees he comes face to face with God. See, that's Epaphras. And he's the model for us in that way, isn't he? He's the mighty prayer intercessor. He's laboring. He's in agony. He's doing what Jesus did in the garden, Luke tells us, in agony, praying very fervently. He's the model for Christ in a human form, even in a sinful form. He's the pastor who's praying. Boy, that's a great encouragement. Do you pray regularly for people in your sphere of influence? I know this. We as pastors spend Thursday morning, we meet from 8.15 to about 12.15, and much of that time is devoted to talking about relationships and spending a good bit of that time praying 
for those relationships. We receive that prayer letter like you do. We try to take it seriously. We look at that. We talk about these relationships. We take individuals. We ask how they're doing. We ask for regular updates, and then we spend time committed in prayer for you. And we could do it even more. And that's the challenge for all of us, not just the pastors, but for all of us. W.H. Griffith Thomas, who was one of the founders of Dallas Theological Seminary, said it this way, There are many things outside the power of ordinary Christian people, and great position, wide influence, outstanding ability may be lacking to almost all of us, but the humblest and least significant Christian can pray. And as prayer moves the hand that moves the world, perhaps the greatest power we can exert is that which comes through prayer. Epaphras is a great model for us. He was always laboring earnestly in his prayers for you with great toil. Are you like Epaphras, one of Paul's true scholars in the school of intercession? We must be. You know, if we're really concerned about people around us, if we really have relationships at the top of the list, we'll be praying for them. How many times have you and I been convicted when someone comes back to us and says, you know, I mentioned to you that prayer request some weeks ago or some months ago. Did you pray for me? And sometimes they'll let us off the hook even more than that. They'll say, you know, I just wanted to give you an update that God has answered that prayer. And then there's that gentle conviction of the Holy Spirit that says, I, I, I forgot to pray. I, I didn't remember to do that. Oh, Lord. Don't let me do that. If someone thinks it's important enough to come to me and ask me to pray for them, I must do it. I must do it. They, they're eliciting my prayer support on their behalf. They're asking me to intercede. Oh, Epaphras grasped what many of us are slow to realize, that the tactics of the Christian battle are born through the strategy of prayer. Boy, what a great example. And then look at Luke. The beloved physician, verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings. You say, what's the character quality in this man? Just that, just what Paul said, the beloved physician. How does that relate to us? Well, it's obvious that Luke, being a medical doctor, was all about both sharing the gospel and also meeting people's physical needs. Isn't that what we're called to do? We're called to do that. We're called, all of us, to endeavor to meet people's physical needs. All of us. You say, how so? Look in your Bibles at 1 John. 1 John. Chapter 3. It's so very clear. All of us are called to meet the physical needs of people. We're called to do that which would make people well if we could. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. You know, that's Luke. He said, hey, the Lord has given me a gift by giving me medical training, 
and now Paul has given me a charge, a summons to go along with him through all of the Acts because he, Luke, is the author of both Luke and Acts. It's a chronology of all the words and works of the apostles. And when Luke says, I'm going to go, he says, I have a double-edged ministry. I'm going to preach the gospel, and if there are any physical needs, I'm going to endeavor to meet them. Well, that's a, that's a wonderful character quality. And for us, maybe a great challenge. Maybe we are not like Luke, who has the medical training, but there are certainly needs we could meet. Small things, really. Maybe if it, it means making a meal for someone who's sick, if it means visiting someone's house and helping them clean up, if it means buying someone some clothes who might be indigent, it might be something as little as asking someone if they have any needs. It could be as little as that. And that's what Luke is for us. Are we quick to meet others' needs? Or do we think of our own needs really more than the one who's right next to us? And then, number eight, Demas. Demas. Verse 14, greet also Demas. So what's the issue in Demas' life? Well, in the early companionship with Paul, he's called a fellow worker, according to Philemon 24, so that's good. That's good for Demas. He's called a fellow worker. That means he's a part of the group. Apparently things are well, but something happened. Something happened. Because we find out in 2 Timothy 4.10 these words. Remember now, Luke, who's a faithful and loyal guy who stayed with Paul all the way to the end, is there with him. And he says, bring Mark. He's useful to me for service. Paul says, everybody else has deserted me. And he said, Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. And the word therefore deserted means that he abandoned someone in the midst of adverse conditions. When Paul needed him most, Demas wasn't there. Let's call him the world lover. The world lover. He apparently was in love with the present evil system. Paul says, having loved this present world. He was more concerned about the passing pleasures of sin than the delayed gratification of the eternal glory beyond. Now this is a negative example. All the rest of these have been really positive. Being an eager encourager and being a person who is involved in meeting physical needs and someone who's a useful and a forgiven slave, someone who's a faithful, mighty prayer intercessor. But here we have the negative example of someone who's loving the world more than they're loving Christ. Now we don't know if this means that Demas was temporarily doing this or if he had decided once and for all to desert, we're not told. But at least for all eternity in the Scripture, he'll be known as the one who loved this present world. You say, what does that entail? Well, 1 John 2 tells us that those who love the world are involved in the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. He was flirting with the world. Herbert Seeking says there is no place of honor for Demas. He will ever bear the odium of the fickle. We don't know why, but he just left. When Paul needed him most, when Paul was about to be crucified, Demas wasn't around. Boy, that, 
That should be a spine-chilling response from every one of us that says, Lord, don't let me be a Demas. Let me be the eager encourager. Let me be the mighty intercessor. Don't let me be the Demas. I don't, I don't want to love the world. Shield me from the world. Take me away from it. Deliver me from it. Lord, if it means plucking my eye out or cutting my finger off, deliver me from the snatches of the world. Don't let me be a Demas. And then Nympha. Look at verses 15 and 16. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Now, we don't know exactly who this person is, and in fact, because sometimes masculine and feminine were not always differentiated, we don't know if this is a man or a woman. Let's say it's a woman. What is the great quality here? Well, let's call her the hospitable host. The hospitable host. Greet Nympha, who actually has the church meeting in her house. I'd say that's hospitality. You know that in this time, they only had house churches. They didn't have buildings for which Christians gathered. That didn't really even happen until the middle of the third century. These house churches were people's homes for which the believers would gather. And they would gather for prayer and worship and all the things that we do here. And apparently Nympha, this wonderful gal, was the one who said, we can have it at my house. And that great hospitality comes through. Did you know that hospitality is one of the spiritual gifts located in Romans chapter 12, verse 13? Did you know that hospitality is actually one of the criteria for which we evaluate the office of elder? Did you know that in 1 Timothy 5 it says that if a widow is to be supported financially by the church, she's to be looked on in her life as one who has given hospitality to strangers? Did you know that in Hebrews 13, 2, that it says that we all should be hospitality kind of people because we might even be hospitable to angels unaware? What an opportunity. And Nympha said, hey, let's have it in my house. Are you quick to say, let's have it at my house? Are you quick to be hospitable, to be a wonderful host? Nympha was. And then Archippus, verse 17. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. Who was Archippus? Well, according to Philemon 1 and 2, he might have even been the son of Philemon. Now, wouldn't that be interesting? Onesimus comes to seek forgiveness, and Philemon says, I'll forgive you. Just look at my son Archippus. He's one in the church who's been forgiven in Christ. If I can forgive my physical son, I can also forgive my spiritual son. You say, what is the character quality of Archippus? Well, we don't even know what this means. It's lost to us. It says... Take heed for the ministry which you have received from the Lord that you may bring it to completion. What does that mean? We don't know. Whatever that ministry was, Archippus was told by Paul, you need to fulfill it. You say, what's the character quality? Well, I call him the accountable one. The accountable one. You say, how so? Well, think of it. Here's a New Testament letter that's going to be read in that church and also read by us for all time. And here's this one man, Archippus, and Paul says remind Archippus. Every single person in the congregation is to remind Archippus that he has a ministry from the Lord that he needs to bring to completion. I'd say that's accountability. How would you like for all time for your name to be there and it's for everyone to say, now have you done that ministry which Paul gave you to do? 
Well, that's great accountability. We all need that. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. We need people in our lives to hold us accountable. It may not be that you are listed in Scripture as the one whose ministry must be fulfilled, but it's true of all of us. We all have a ministry. We must do it. We must fulfill it. We must bring it to completion. We must all be accountable. That's so important. And then the last person, Paul. Paul. Verse 18. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. Three things. He authenticates the letter by stamping his own handprint. This is Paul. This authenticates that this is a letter from the Lord. And then secondly, he reminds them of his situation. Remember me and my imprisonment. Remember my bonds. Pray for me. I'm in chains. And then, in order to make sure that all of the character qualities that he's just mentioned in all of the lives of his companions, he knows it can't be done without grace. But he says, grace be with you. It's not just something that someone put at the end of a letter. It's not just like someone saying, in Jesus' name when they pray. It's Paul with a heart of love and gratitude saying to God on behalf of this church, grace, may it be imparted to you. So Paul ends with himself. Yeah, and I believe he ends with himself because he's telling us all of these relationships are important to me and I, Paul, I want you to fulfill all of these character qualities in your life and if you are to look at me, follow me as I follow Christ. You know, if Tychicus is the faithful courier, then Paul is the author of the letter. If Onesimus is the forgiven, useful slave, then Paul is the ultimate example of who has been forgiven and who's a slave to Jesus Christ. If Aristarchus is the valiant warrior for Christ, then Paul's the preeminent warrior. If Mark is the restored servant, then Paul, knowing that he killed Christians and was restored to Christ, he understands that. And Jesus, who is called justice, is the one who's the eager encourager, then Paul's the master encourager. If Epaphras is the one mighty in prayer, then Paul is his model for intercession. If Luke is the beloved physician, then Paul worked with his own hands so he wouldn't be a burden to anyone. He was the tent maker extraordinaire. If Demas was a lover of the world, Paul says about himself, I never deserted the Lord. I fought the good fight. I finished my course. There is now laid up for me a crown, which is life eternal. If Nympha was the hospitable host and Paul provided for everyone around him, he was always meeting people's needs. He was taking money to Jerusalem. Anything he could do to minister to the church and be hospitable. And if Archippus is the accountable one, then Paul was accountable to everyone. His life was an open book. You know, I challenge the people in the first service to do this, and I want to challenge you as we close. I want you to take a piece of paper this afternoon at your leisure, and I'd love for you to write down these people's names with those character qualities if you've not already done so. And I want you to do a spiritual inventory of your life and ask yourself this question. How do these character qualities stack up in me? And just go through that list. You might even be able to come up with other aspects of their life from other portions of Scripture. Take the word encouragement. Take the word hospitable. Uh, take the concepts there and look at your concordance and ask yourself, do I find other passages which convict me about these things? 
As I told you a moment ago, I looked at some of these character qualities and I said, encouragement, I need to work on that. I need to have a plan of action where I can encourage people. This has been a great and helpful study to me and I trust that as you look at these character qualities, you see that relationships are everything. Let's pray together. Father, as we plumb the depths of your truth, you have given us so much from this letter. You've challenged us. You've made us think whether or not we, like the Colossians, have received Jesus Christ and are therefore walking in Him. This is our task. This is our role. This is our function. And even in this last portion, you've challenged us to look at the character qualities of our life and ask us, is it there? Is it true? Is it growing? Is it a weakness? Lord, purge the weakness and make it a great strength. Thank you for giving us this word, for making us holy, so that when we live these character qualities out in our life, the world will take notice and ask us how it is we are different. Oh, Father, bring it to pass by your word and spirit. We'll give you great glory in Christ's name. Amen.